0: Go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 8, and gonna kind of continue on in where we've been the last few weeks, which is talking about uh, the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So we've uh, been working through these four questions, uh, which I think we have up here on a slide, uh, which is why do covenants matter? We did that two weeks ago. We talked about how covenants are like the backbone of Scripture. And the only way we get the main thing in the Bible, which is the story of God's redemption in Christ, is through those covenants. God uses those uh, covenants in the Old Testament as he enters into relationship with his people to be kind of the mechanism through which he communicates that story to them and to us. Then next week, or last week, we came back and we talked about why the new covenant is so much better Than the old, and we talked about how it's better because Christ, through His once-for-all sacrifice on our behalf, puts our sin to an end. It's not a temporary forgiveness like it is in the Old Testament; it is permanent, and it also purchases a permanent relationship for us with God. And so, you know, we talk a lot as Christians about how Christianity isn't a religion. You know, it's about a it's about a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus, and it absolutely is. And a covenant is what defines that relationship. Specifically, it's the new covenant. So we talked about that last week. This week, what we're doing is we're focusing on what happens now to this old covenant that the author of Hebrews has told us is obsolete. So we're, we're focused on questions three and four this week. So what does it mean that the old covenant is obsolete? And then how does that affect how we live in light of this new covenant? So we're going to go ahead and read Hebrews eight. Uh, we're going to read the whole chapter again, uh, which we've done the past few weeks. But our focus this morning is going to be on verse 13 and understanding what that means with help from the rest of the New Testament. So I'll start reading in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under the chairs. And this morning's passage in those Bibles is on page 1005. Now the point point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest... One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been an occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says... And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you that it comes to us in in two parts. There's the part that, that looks forward to you sending the Redeemer into the world to to save us, to overturn the curse of the fall, to bring about the redemption that you promised your people. And we thank you that there's the part that we live under that looks back on the reality that you did send your Son, that he did come, that he did live a perfect life and die an obedient death in our place, paying for our sins, that he did rise again and that he intercedes on our behalf in heaven right now god we thank you that your promises are true and that they all find their yes in christ god i pray that today as we look at what we as christians do with the the old covenant or the old law That we would have the faith to believe that your promises are indeed true in Christ. That we would enjoy and participate in the relationship that you've brought us into and not in something that's been left behind. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice and it's in your name we pray, amen. So what we're going to talk about today is what we do with the Old Testament law and uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say right now, I think that there's going to be things that I say that uh, that cause you problems, uh, that cause you some cognitive dissonance. When I start talking about the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments and what we do with it or don't do with it, there are going to be things that ruffle your feathers. And they do mine too. And the reason why I think that is is because naturally we are all more prone to to legalism where we want a list of things that we can do and know this is exactly how I'm performing I know exactly how I measure up we don't like open-ended questions we want closed-ended questions and on the other hand I think a lot of us just lack the faith on a day-in-day-out basis to believe that Jesus really did for us what he said he did for us we still think even if it's just a really really small part of it we still think that just that tiny bit depends on us and our performance and not on him and his performance. And so as we go through this, uh, my desire would be for you just to kind of hang with me, even if I say something that really makes you mad. Just hang on, see what the Word says, hear me out, and then at the end we're going to have some Q&A time. So if you've got huge grievances, just store them up and unleash them at the end. Preferably not, but... (laughs) You know what I mean? So, we've gone through Hebrews 8, and we get to the very end, verse 13, where he says, "...in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete." And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So we want to know what what he's talking about when he says that the the old covenant is obsolete. And here, I think, is one place. There's going to be a few places as we go through some different passages today where it would be really easy for us to misunderstand what he's saying here. Be really easy for us to read verse 13 and hear him saying, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And think that the author of Hebrews is talking about our time right now as we're reading this. When God speaks of this new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Be easy for us to read this and think that right now, this old covenant that he's talking about is in this place where it's growing old and it's becoming ready to vanish away. Or it'd be easy for us to go back a little further in time and say, well, that's what's happening when the author of Hebrews is writing this. But the problem with that is that that's not what he says. What he says is that in speaking of a new covenant, when God spoke of a new covenant, he made the first one obsolete. So when did God speak of a new covenant? Well, here he's referring to the passage that he's just quoted from Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah was written sometime before 550 B.C. So God spoke these words that he's quoted from Jeremiah 31 that we talked about last week, sometime before 550 BC. So that is the time in which he spoke of this new covenant. That's the time in which he's saying the first one has been made obsolete. The first one is becoming obsolete. It's growing old. It's ready to vanish away. So that's a long time ago. Now we live in a period in which what he's saying has happened. It has become obsolete. It has grown old. It has vanished away. That happened when Christ came. When Christ came, the old, te- the old covenant ended. And the new covenant began. That's what we live under. And so you really believe me that that's what happens. We're going to go to a few other passages and see this very same thing. This isn't just the author of Hebrews saying this. this isn't just me saying this. This is all over the New Testament. So turn with me over to Matthew chapter 5. It's also going to be on the slides if you don't want to flip back and forth. We're going to read verses 17 and 18 of Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished so Jesus here is talking to the crowds and he's trying to correct some misunderstandings that people have about what he's going to do with the law and the prophets and often when this passage has been taught, what we usually hear is that when Jesus is saying, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, that what Jesus is saying is that he came to keep the law, right? He came to perfectly obey the law in every way. And because of that, that's how he fulfills the law. And that's absolutely true. Jesus does perfectly fulfill the law. He does perfectly keep the law. He does perfectly obey the law. And we see that in other passages in the New Testament, but we don't see that in this passage. The reason why we know that that's not what he's talking about is because he doesn't just say, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He's talking about both. He's talking about the law and the prophets. So it's not just about law-keeping that's on his mind. It's something else. And what he's talking about is the scriptures. Right now, if you would drive to a bookstore, probably not one in Hannibal, but one in a bigger city, you could buy a copy of the Jewish Bible. And what that Jewish Bible would be called is a Tanakh. And that's just a way they pronounce this acronym, which is T-N-K the T stands for Torah, which is the law, the N stands for Nevi'im, which is prophets, and the K stands for Ketuvim, which is writings. That's the divisions of the Jewish Bible. That's the divisions of the Hebrew Bible. T, N, K. So when Jesus here says law and prophets, what he's referring to is the Old Testament. The reason why he doesn't say writings here is because during this time, the writings weren't finished yet. They weren't put together with the rest of the book. And so in the New Testament, you see the Old Testament referred to as the law. You see it referred to as the law and the prophets. Sometimes it's the law of the prophets and the writings. Sometimes it's the law of the prophets and the Psalms. And so here, when he says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them, he's saying, I am the completion of the Old Testament. He's saying, I'm fulfilling everything that came before and so he's not talking about doing away with the law. He's talking about how the law, not just the, you know, small individual prophecies, but the whole thing is like a giant arrow that points to him, that anticipates his coming. And he's saying, I am the fulfillment of all of that. And then he says, he gives them a promise further for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest part of the smallest letter will pass away until it has all been accomplished. And Jesus does that on the cross. He fulfills all the promises of God on the cross. This is why Paul can say, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And so what we get in Matthew 5, 17 and 18 is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It looks forward to his coming and he does it perfectly. So because of that, there's a decisive break, which what has come before and something new changes. The next passage we're going to go to is Romans 10, 4. The reason why we're just reading one verse here is because this is one verse in the midst of a few really complex chapters on the relationship between the church and Israel. And so if we get very far outside of this verse we're going to get lost in an, another debate that we don't have time for this morning so Romans 104 Paul says for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to to everyone who believes. So Paul here is talking about what Christ does with the law. Christ is the end of the law. This word end, sometimes it means goal, sometimes it means termination. So the end could be the goal of something, or it could be the, the end. The, it stops happening. Um, and sometimes, oftentimes, it's both. So let's say, for example, we play a game of ping pong. Uh, depending on which rules you use, the game ends at 11, 15, or 21 points. Um, And the goal of the game is to... What? Win. Not have fun. The goal is to win. (laughs) And when you get 11, 15, or 21 points, what happens to the game? It's done. It ends... And your goal is accomplished when you get that many points. So the end of the game means both goal and termination. The game stops happening. If you want to play again, you play again. When Paul says Christ is the end of the law, that's the kind of end that he's talking about. He is both the law's termination and what it was looking forward to. He is the purpose of the law. He is its fulfillment. When he comes, he is the death of the law to go to another passage. 2 Corinthians 3. This one's a little longer. Here we're going to read verses 4 through 11. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us "...sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory." Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So here, what's going on is Paul is comparing and contrasting his own ministry under the new covenant with old covenant ministry. And as he does this, he also gives us quite a bit of information about what has happened to the relationship between the new covenant and the old covenant. So he says in verse 4 that they have confidence towards God. Verse 5, not because he's sufficient in himself, but because his sufficiency comes from God. Then he says in verse 6, because he's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, and then it's not of the letter But of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So right there is a pretty big contrast between the law and the Spirit. The law kills, the Spirit gives life. Verse 7, just so we know that he's talking about the law, he makes it clear here. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, what is he talking about there? What is carved in letters on stone? The Ten Commandments. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' faith because of its glory, so right there he's acknowledging this this old ministry, the law, it came with glory. It came with so much glory that when Moses came down the mountain, his face was glowing and people couldn't look at it. He's saying that because it came with glory, will not, verse 8, the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Verse 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So here he's making an argument. He's saying the old covenant came with glory, but because the new covenant gives life, we should assume that it's going to come with more glory. And he confirms this. Verse 10, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. So right there he's saying the glory of the old covenant is passed away the glory of the new covenant has eclipsed it. Verse 11, for if what was being brought to an end, again, it was being brought to an end, now it's come to an end, much more will what is permanent have glory. So right here in Second Corinthians 3, what we're getting is more of the same. Paul is saying that this was passing away, it was brought to an end, what has been left in its place is permanent and far surpasses it in glory. He even emphasizes the fact that it couldn't give life, but his ministry under the new covenant does give life. The last passage we're going to go to is Romans chapter 7. This one I think is the most clear, so maybe we should have went here first. But Romans 7, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So Paul here, trying to teach people how they're to relate to the Old Testament law, he gives them an illustration from marriage. He says it's just like when you're married. When you're married, you're under a covenant. And that covenant is till death do us part. It is so long as we both shall live. But when one of you dies, that covenant is terminated. I'm not trying to make light of the death of a spouse, but that's what happens. When one spouse dies, the covenant is gone. And the existing spouse is free to remarry, uh, preferably after a significant period of grief. Here, he's saying it's just like that with the law. When you die, you're no longer bound by the Old Testament law. And he's saying we died when we were united with Christ in his death. So when we talk about how our union with Christ and his death frees us from sin, death, and Satan, we should also include the fact that it frees us from the law. We're no longer bound by the law. Verse 6, Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. We died to the law when Christ died to the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code, which is the Old Testament law. So, All of these passages together argue the same thing, and there are more of them scattered across the New Testament. What they're saying is that we live in the time period of the New Covenant. We do not live under the Old Covenant. Because of that, we are under no obligation whatsoever as followers of Jesus to keep the Old Testament law. Any of it. Not the ceremonial stuff like, you know, when um, you sin, you got to go out and kill some pigeons or a calf or a sheep, depending on how much money you have. You can pick whichever one you can afford. We don't have to do any of the civil stuff because we're not the nation of Israel, so we don't keep the nations of Israel's laws. And we don't have to keep any of the moral law of the Old Testament none of it is binding on us anymore. That should cause you to think, well, what about the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are laws given to us under the Old Covenant. They're moral laws. They're on buildings, posters, all over the place. What do we do with the Ten Commandments? My answer is nothing. We do not have to keep the Ten Commandments. Because the Ten Commandments are part of the Old Covenant. We're not under the Old Covenant. We've died to the Old Covenant in Christ. The Ten Commandments are part of that, and so we don't have to keep them. And that should freak you out. As Christians, we don't keep any of the Old Testament law. That does not mean that we're free to do whatever we want. God still places obligations on us. He still gives us commands in the New Testament. Uh, we're called, instead of keeping the old covenant laws, we're called to keep the laws of the new covenant, which is the law of Christ. Some places it's called the law of love, some places it's called the royal law. It's what he tells us to do. This is exactly what he says in the Great Commission, right? He sends out his disciples. He says, Go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. He doesn't say, Go out and tell people to do whatever they want. He says, Teach them to obey all that I've commanded. So what we are responsible to do is to keep the commands in the New Testament, under the New Covenant. We're not required to keep the commands in the Old Covenant. This does not mean that we should just rip the Old Testament out of our Bibles. Right? It doesn't mean that it, well, it doesn't apply in the same way, and so it's just gone. We shouldn't pay any attention to it. In fact, I think the opposite is true. When we understand how Christ relates to the Old Testament, we will love the Old Testament more. We will read it more. We will study it more because we'll understand that it's there that we see that it points to Jesus, that it is fulfilled in Jesus, that we get the story of God's uh, promise of redemption and how all of those promises find their yes in Christ. We won't read it as some burden that we have to bear because we'll recognize that Christ already bore that burden for us. We are released from the law. This doesn't mean that we can do the things that the Ten Commandments tell us not to do. Right? When I say we don't have to keep the Ten Commandments, sometimes people freak out. Like, does that mean that it's okay to murder and steal and commit adultery? No. Why not? Because Jesus tells us not to in the New Testament. Not because the Ten Commandments tell us to, because he tells us to. And then some people will say, well, the Ten Commandments just represent God's moral character. Because of that, we should celebrate them. You're right. The reason why the two testaments are so similar is because they're written by the same person. But that doesn't mean we do what the old one says. We do what the new one says because the old one isn't binding on us anymore. I think the Ten Commandments are a helpful you know, list of things that represent God's character, but there's also those in the New Testament. So let's just stick with the New Testament since that's what is binding upon us. I think a helpful illustration to, to think of this difference of, of why we keep at least 9 out of 10, 10 commandments, because the Sabbath isn't really picked up and reinforced in the New Testament, but we don't keep the 10 commandments, is when we think about our laws. So how many of you pay taxes? If you don't raise your hand, you're admitting to criminal actions. So we all pay taxes. Who do we pay taxes for? Yeah. In this case, who is Caesar? <laughs> we pay taxes to the U.S. government, right? Where do, most of, where do a lot of our laws come from, historically speaking? What other nations have we been influenced by as a country? The U.K. So do we pay taxes to the U.K.? Not anymore. Why not? They say we should pay taxes, right? We defeated them, right? <laughs> Their law over us came to an end. And so we don't pay taxes to England because we want to keep as much of our money as we possibly can for ourselves uh, and for others. Uh, and so we only pay taxes to those who we have to pay taxes to. In the same way, right, we don't murder people because murder is against the law in our country. But if we go to England and we murder somebody, what's going to happen to us? Are we going to be punished? Why? Why? Because England's against the law in the U.S.? Or England is against the law in the U.S.? (laughs) Because murder is against the law in the U.S.? No, we're going to be held accountable because murder is against the law in the U.K. Whichever law we are under is the one we're responsible to keep. We're not under the Old Testament law. We're not under the Ten Commandments, so we don't have to keep them. We keep the commands in the New Testament. I have this flowchart for us. So if we want to know, do we have to keep a command? We ask, is it in the Old Testament? If it's in the Old Testament, is it also in the New Testament? If it's not in the New Testament, is it implied by the New Testament? So for example, uh, I don't know off the top of my head of any command in the Old Testament that says, don't punch your neighbor in the face, specifically. But it's implied in the New Testament when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, that we will not act in that way. And so I think that because of that, we should keep that command. If it's not in the New Testament, if it's not implied in the New Testament, then no, we do not have to keep it. So we can eat bacon, we can have tattoos, we can wear clothes that are made of two different kinds of fabric, which is good because if that wasn't the case, all of us would be in deep, deep sin right now. If it's in the New Testament... Yes, we keep it. If it's not in the New Testament, we ask ourselves the same question. Is it implied in the New Testament? If it's not implied in the New Testament, if it's not in the New Testament, then no, we don't have to keep that command as a command from God. If it is, we do. And that's a huge oversimplification of what we do with the commands of God. But the point is, if a command is only in, the New, only in the Old Testament, it's not implied by any kind of New Testament command, then no, we do not have to keep that as the law of God. The Old Testament is no longer binding on us. I don't know how many different ways I can say that. So another question that comes up when we talk about the law is some people uh, list three uses of the law. This is is what we do with the Old Testament law. So those three uses, the first one is to be a mirror. So by looking at the Old Testament law, we see both the character of God displayed and we see our own sinfulness displayed. And so the Old Testament, the Old Testament law exists to be that mirror for us. Um, The second one is a restriction. So the Old Testament law exists to restrict sin. So an example of this would be the speed limit, right? How many of us follow the speed limit exactly and don't ever go over? Probably not very many of us. But if the speed limit wasn't 70 and was 90, we would go 97 instead of 77. And so the law exists to restrict how much we're going to break the law. The third is reveal. Uh, it reveals what is pleasing to God. And so a lot of people will say we should take these things and we should apply them to the Old Testament. Um, personally, that's not where I am. I don't think that's the case. I do think that we can look at the Old Testament. We can see God's character. I also think that uh, we can do that with the New Testament. I think specifically, the first two I'm fine with. If We want to say, that, see those things in the Old Testament, that's, that's great. The third one I think we need to be very careful about. Uh, does the Old Testament reveal what's pleasing to God? Yes. It reveals what's pleasing to God for the people of Israel. We're not the people of Israel. Um, And because of that, I think that that could cause us to think that then we need to keep the law in the Old Testament when we don't. Instead, I think we should look to the New Testament to find out what's pleasing to God and is binding upon us because that's what Jesus says. That's what Paul says. That's what the author of Hebrews says. And so... The third, the third use of the law is a really big, popular thing for lots of Reformed people, especially lots of Presbyterians. It comes from Calvin, and this is what Luther says, which I tend to agree with. He says, Moses has nothing to do with us. If I were to accept Moses in one commandment, I would have to accept the entire Moses, which is just an awesome phrase, the entire Moses. <laughs> Moses is dead. His rule ended when Christ came. He is of no further service. (laughs) It's typical Luther, and it's a bit of an overstatement, but what he's saying is that he served his purpose. His purpose was to point to Jesus, and Jesus came and fulfilled it. Uh, Ironically, Luther agrees with James here, where James says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it which I think is what we often do with the Old Testament. We think, well, yeah, we should, we should do this one thing. Well, if we do that one thing, then we're becoming accountable to all of it. If we want to live under that law, under any of that law, we have to live under all of it. And so if you want to tell me that we have to keep the Old Testament law, I'm going to expect you to keep all of it. Not eat bacon, not have tattoos, not have clothes of different fabrics. When Uh, forgive me for this, but when your wife's uh, monthly time period comes along, I'm expecting you to send her outside the city to be away from you for a while before she comes back. And if you don't do that, I'm going to call you a hypocrite. Because you're not keeping the Old Testament law unless you keep the whole thing, which is what James is saying and which is what Luther is saying. And so my hope here has been to almost overstate the case that we don't have to do what the Old Testament says. Again, this does not mean that I think we can do whatever we want. When someone asks you, do we need to keep God's law? What you should ask them is what do they mean by law? If they mean the Old Testament law, if they mean the Mosaic law, the answer is no, without any questions or qualifications whatsoever. If they mean Do we have to do what God requires of us? The answer is absolutely yes. But what we need to recognize is that the way the law works in the Old Testament and the way the law works in the New Testament is very, very, very different. So much so that I think in some ways it's not really helpful for us to think about the commands in the New Testament as law at all. They're laws in the sense that it's what God requires of us, but the difference is as we talked about last week, because of the new covenant, we're now empowered to keep them. He's written them on our minds. He's written them on our hearts. He's taken out our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. He's put his spirit within us, and he causes us to walk in his statutes. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul says that we walk in the good works that have been prepared for us beforehand. What he's talking about is that the way our obedience works is completely different for us than it was for them under the Old Testament. Our obedience has been purchased for us. And so I think it's helpful. There's a book called Counsel from the Cross, which is about biblical counseling. But in it, she makes this distinction between the commands and kind of the the statements in the New Testament which talk about our identity in Christ. She talks about gospel declarations, which are things in the New Testament that are true of us because of what Christ has done on our behalf. So we are children of God. We are justified. We are sanctified. These things that are true of us. And she also talks about gospel obligations, which are things that we must do because of what he has done but it's important for us to recognize that they're good news too. They're good news because they're not some burden that we're just trying to bear but can't bear. They're good news because they're something that's been prepared beforehand for us to walk in. They're good news because our obedience has been purchased. For example, Paul says in Ephesians, he says, therefore, as children of God, uh, no, he says, therefore, beloved children of God, be imitators of God. So what he says there is we are children of God. We've been adopted. We've been purchased by Christ's blood into his family because that's true of us. Therefore, imitate God. We're prone to see that command and think, I need to imitate God. I need to imitate God. I need to imitate God. And just try to do that in our own strength. Like we would keep the Old Testament law. But instead, what we should see there is that he's made us new. He's bought us into the family. He's done so much work already on our behalf. He's made us his children. And because we're his children, we have the family likeness already. And we can imitate him. It's not some command forced upon us from on high that we must just with all our might try to complete. But instead, it's something that's been purchased for us to walk in. We're equipped to be imitators of God because He's made us His children. So, there are laws in the New Testament, but they're freeing laws that we're enabled to keep because of what He's done for us in Christ. And really, that's the answer of the fourth question: of Why does it matter that we live under the New Covenant? It matters because we don't have this huge burden placed on our back that we're unable to keep. Instead. He's made us new. He's purchased us as his people under this covenant. And the way our obedience works is completely different than anything that has come before. On top of that, right, we know that Jesus did perfectly obey the law. That's why it's been done away with. He's perfectly obeyed God in every way in our place. So his obedience provides for grace in our failure. So even when we don't do what God requires of us, even though he's enabled us to do it, Christ's grace still covers us. His obedience on our behalf purchases not only our obedience, but also our failure. So because of that, we know that we have grace in any circumstance. His grace is sufficient for us in everything. But that only applies if we're in Christ. Right, If we're not his beloved children, we're not able to imitate God. It's just as if we're still under the old covenant, striving with our effort to keep his laws and not with his. The new covenant matters because it completely defines our relationship with God. Any relationship we have with him is because of the new covenant. Any obedience, any forgiveness, all of our interactions with God come to us through Christ's mediation of this new covenant. The old one is obsolete, and so we should quit trying to live like it's not. Instead, we should live in light of the new. I'm sure that all of that was 100% clear, and you all agree and have been convinced. But what questions do you have? What didn't I explain well? What didn't make sense? And if you're new at BC and you've never been here and when we've done this before... Uh, Sorry if this freaks you out, but get over it, <laughs> please. Uh, what would you do with things like First Corinthians fourteen? Uh, women should be kept silent in churches. Um, in the, how, would you, how would you reconcile those things with the? First, I'm gonna say I'm glad you asked that question, not Katie, because. <laughs> <laughs> <yeah. laughs> How would I reconcile that with what? Well, just like uh, New Testament, New Testament, and yeah, would you say that's Do you see the flow chart again? <laughs> yeah, I think that. So when we talk about, uh, yeah, how can, look, 1 Corinthians fourteen, women should be kept silent in churches; they're not permitted to speak, but it should be in submission as the law of faith also. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I feel like this is going to lead to some follow-up questions. Um, Yeah, I mean, first of all, that chart is an incredible oversimplification of what we do with commands in Scripture. Um, I think with commands like that, we need to ask, um, and there's a three-step process, and I can't think of the three steps right now. Um, But essentially, what we need to do is we need to ask, what what is the principle here? And how much of this principle is colored by cultural expression? So, for example, in uh, the First Corinthians passage, um, there's... Wait, what was it again? Real quick. Yeah. So here, what's going on in First Corinthians 14 is he's talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about orderly worship in light of the exercise of spiritual gifts. And so, what he seems to be saying here is, uh, if we back up a little bit, he says... Verse 29, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For if, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And he says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be kept silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. So, I think that what he's saying there is, as the law also says part, he's saying that this is, this is like it used to work. It works that way now in these churches. What's happening here is he's talking about the evaluation of prophecy. So uh, we don't currently at BC have anyone who exercises the spiritual gift of prophecy in this way. It would be awesome if we did. If some Sundays there were people that came up and said, hey, I feel like I have a word from the Lord that I want to share with the body. And the elders would say, What is it? And then we would evaluate it and let them share. And then what the church would do is the church would evaluate it. And so he's talking about the time period in which they're evaluating these prophecies. So someone comes, they say something, and then the church is evaluating this message on its truthfulness, on its faithfulness to God's word. And I think that's where this comes in. He's saying that during this time period, women should remain silent. It's not because they cannot evaluate prophecy. I don't. Some people will say that it's because you know, the elders of the leaders in the church should do this and elsewhere we know that women shouldn't serve in those positions. I think it's dealing with a cultural problem where there's another passage where it says women shouldn't ask questions. They should learn in silence and ask their husbands at home. The reason why is because in this culture it was really improper for a lady to ask a question of another man's another woman's husband. Um, and so he would say, ask at home. You know, don't, don't do that thing, which is a cultural faux pas. Do it some other way. And so I think that that's what's happening here, is that women participating in that time in the church would lead to potentially one woman correcting another woman's husband. Whereas now, we don't live in that world, right? If some lady asks a question during this time, we don't all go, <gasps> we just react normally because that's the culture we live in. Um, but the principle, I think, still applies in that we should take care into how we communicate things in these kinds of settings and how they'll be received culturally. So we get rid of the culture, specific cultural expression, but fulfill the principle. Another, another one that kind of fits into that mold would be uh, in, towards the end of a lot of the letters, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And I'm guessing when you guys walked in that neither Austin nor Erica gave you a little smooch on the way in the door. The reason why is because in our culture, that's not how we greet one another. Hopefully, they shook your hand, said hi, gave you a bulletin, did something to greet you and welcome you into the YMCA. But they didn't kiss you. In other cultures, churches will still do the kiss, and it's not weird because that's how their culture operates. And so it's the principle of greeting one another is carried over, but the specific cultural expression of it is is left behind or worked into the culture that it's applied in. (laughs) Uh, We talked about, uh, we uh, addressed how we're free from the old uh, law and I thought that was really good. What would you do with some of the, like, the Ten Commandments were not to obey them, um, but what do we what do we now do with this half of the Old Testament? Like, are there maybe out of the Ten Commandments? How would you celebrate them? What would you look for? What would you gain from this half of the Old? Testament? Yeah, yeah. I think it, it's both understanding what what it was like uh, for the people of God in the Old Testament to wait for a redeemer. You know, and to try to follow God and be his people in a time period in which they didn't enjoy the relationship with him that we do. And so for me, it's more of a, like, recognizing that the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. It's a revelation of who he is and how he was promising redemption to his people, you know, through generation after generation after generation. I think that there is, like, a, it reveals God's character to us. You know, I think that the the, the follow up to those three things that we saw before of the uses of the law for me would be well how do we see this carried over into the New Testament? So like it seems really silly to be like yeah, the 10 commandments don't apply, but nine out of 10 of them do. You know, like we don't not commit adultery because Exodus tells us to. We don't commit adultery because Jesus does in Matthew. Like in both places it's God telling us to do it. So like in some ways, that's a splitting a hair for the purpose of clarity with what we do with the law. But I still think we can read the law and benefit from it morally. We just need to be careful. It's just like uh, like a question is how do we you know how do we read the Old Testament and see what what's pointing forward to Jesus? So like when Matthew uh, in Matthew 2 is saying, you know, out of Egypt I called my son. Like Jesus coming out of Egypt fulfilled what Hosea said in Hosea eleven two. And if you go back and you read Hosea 11, you think, how in the world is this a prophecy that the Messiah is going to come? And instead what it is is he's picking up a theme from the Old Testament and saying this theme pointed to Jesus. And the question is, well, can we read our Bibles that way too? And maybe pull something out of the Old Testament that might not seem like a prophecy, but we're saying, yeah, this points to Jesus in this way. And I think that we can, but what we need to recognize is that we don't have Matthew's authority. right? We can't just say, yeah, this is absolutely what this means in the Old Testament, and this is how it applies. We need to do it more tentatively. And I think that when we approach the commands in the Old Testament and how they're carried over, that's what we should do. We should say, yeah, I think that this is what this reveals about God's character. I think this is how this command is applied now, but recognize I do not have the authority of the New Testament authors when I say this. So, cautiously. Do you think the, the Old Covenant promised eternal life? Or was it just physical, like land and the better promises of eternal life? I would say, so the question was, did the Old Covenant promise eternal life? My answer would be no, but that didn't. like So, I would say that the people in the Old Testament they weren't saved by keeping the law. They were saved by putting faith in the promise that God was going to send a Redeemer. And so like they're saved the same way we're saved, only they're saved looking forward to the Redeemer that's going to come, it's going to overturn the curse of the fall, it's going to overturn death and bring them life. The difference is He hasn't come yet. And so they're, they're putting their hope in that promise and saved by that faith, whereas we're saved by the faith looking back and saying that has had, happened already. Um, and I think we see that built into the, the way the Old Testament story unfolds. Like for example, one thing I feel like we, we hear a lot with the use of the law for Christians, and like people will say, like, you know, you got you to gotta get people lost before you get them saved. And so like we come in, and we give them the law, and then they're like, I can't keep the law, and we're like, oh, well, here's grace, so you're fine. And like that's, that's evangelism. But that's not how it works in scripture. In scripture we see God come in and pour out his grace, redeem people out of slavery in Egypt, and then he enters into relationship with people and says, "Now that I've redeemed you, now that I've saved you out of slavery, here's a law by which you can be my people." And so like it's not as if it works backwards in the Old Testament and you know you give people law and then you give them grace. God gives people grace and then he gives them his law so they can live in light of that. So I would not advocate that method of evangelism. So that are you saying humanity will be judged on the old law, but will be judged on the law of Christ? Yeah, I mean that's a trickier question because it, Paul seems to talk about it both ways. I, mean, I would say they they are responsible for uh, keeping God's standard. We all are. The difference is for those who are in Christ, his keeping of it is what counts for us. in two ways, like when it comes to looking at the Old Testament you say like we look for the spirit of the law, like Paul talks about like the principles, so we can look at some of those even the most obscure of things like I think so. I think we, I think we want to see, like, I think the, we keep the spirit of the law. Like, I, I agree theologically, but I think practically that's entirely subjective. And so I would want to say like, yes, but we want to see some tangible expressions of that in the New Testament. So like gleaning laws, for example, you know, don't, harvest your whole field, leave some of it there for the widow, the sojourner, people that, that don't have fields um, so they can eat. Like In the New Testament, we see that we're called to give sacrificially and cheerfully. And so that, that could be something we could apply in some ways in our lives. Um, but I think when we don't have any correlation to the New Testament, that's when we need to say, this should probably just be left back there. I mean, I think that while that specific thing isn't mentioned in the New Testament, like it seems pretty clear that the God's design for men and women in creation carry over into the New Testament. I mean, like we can debate about what that design means for how men and women relate to one another and and all of those things, but like it's pretty clear that he's saying, and and that's reiterated in the New Testament, that God created people in this way in his image. And that's all we get. You know, there's no, there doesn't seem to be any changing for me of, of gender in Scripture. It's pretty clear that God made us this way and that's who we are. Like he, he defines our identity, not us. Yeah, I mean, regardless of what covenant we're under, people are going to want to disobey it. I think that we need to figure out how we can uphold God's truth uh, stand for how he defines identity regardless of what issue we're talking about and still figure out a way to us keep the command of loving our neighbor as ourself even if they're living in a way which is directly contrary to God's word. I think it's what we want to do is is take the law and throw it at them when the way of the law is expressed in the New Testament is, is the law of love. And so the the impetus is on us to figure out how to be loving to them while we call them to live as God requires. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean it shows us that not doing what God requires is sin. And that's where, like, I would say that's why we need to talk. We need to define what we mean by law. Like for them to uh, to fail to praise God's law in the Old Testament would have been sinful. For us to fail to praise God's commands in Jesus would be sinful, but he's done he's done away with the old yeah what's up? so on that issue like of uh, like sexual roles and gender um would that be an issue like of using the old and New Testament or uh, the old to like get like a para- paradigmatic view of something like gender? I'm not necessarily picking out the individual commandments that tended to that, like where it'd still be useful to gain like an overall broader perspective. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I think it's important to, to recognize that like, when I'm saying we don't keep the Old Testament, we're not bound by the Old Testament, I'm talking about the law. I'm not saying that like Genesis 1 and 2 and the way God created the world, like, well, it just doesn't matter anymore. You know, like Genesis 1 and 2 set the stage for everything that follows in Scripture. And because of the fall, what Jesus is doing is he's returning us to a new creation. He's returning us to the way things were always supposed to be. And so I think that we should look to Genesis 1 and 2 and see God's design for his creation and figure out how that's fleshed out in our world, and our culture. Not just say that doesn't matter anymore. I'm specifically talking about the law. Thanks for that. Is the sign of the cross and Holy Spirit? Yeah, I mean, Nathan just gave me the answer. It's regeneration. Being being born again, like circumcision of the heart, is how they talked about it in, in the Old Testament and the promises that lead up to the new covenant, and for us now. And so. Um some people will say that it's baptism, and because of that we should we should baptize all our babies so that they can become part of the covenant community. Um, I don't think that baptism is the new circumcision. Um, I think that circumcision is the new circumcision, but it's circumcision of the heart, not outward external. All right, if you have any more questions, and you didn't want to ask them in front of people, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about it afterwards. also. Um, you know, where our fall series is coming up and we're going to answer questions people have about the Bible. So if there's a big one or a small one that came up from this topic or others related to it, we can add that into some of the answers people are going to give for that. Um, Now, as we transition to take the Lord's Supper, I would just encourage you to, instead of getting caught up on you know, the the debate about what we do with the law or, um, you know, how, how to flesh out all the practical application of, of what we do now and how we obey now and what we obey now. Instead, I would encourage you to spend your time preparing your heart for the Lord's Supper by reminding yourself that the Lord's Supper represents that Christ's work is finished on your behalf. He did perfectly fulfill the Old Testament. He did put the law to death in Himself. He did bring us into the new covenant age where we have a perfect relationship with the Father that can't be taken away from us. Uh, so I would encourage you to prepare your heart thanking Him for His gracious gift to you in Christ. Uh, and then whenever you're ready, if you haven't been to BC before, the way we celebrate the Lord's Supper is it's uh, the bread and the cup is laid out over there on the table. And so I'm going to pray and then you'll have some time to pray and prepare your heart to take the Lord's Supper. And we do this Uh, every Sunday together, because we believe as a church that we need to be reminded again and again and again and again of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, and that we never outgrow our need to be reminded of uh, the gospel and what Christ has done for us. So let's pray, and then after I'm done, prepare your heart and celebrate his death on our behalf with us. Jesus, we thank you that you are the end of the law that when we place our faith in you, the Father counts your righteousness for ours, and we don't need to seek any kind of external righteousness from our law-keeping or obedience, that yours is enough. Pray that you would help us to remember and believe that, that we would know that Our relationship with you isn't determined by our keeping of some list, but it's wholly determined by your sacrificial work on our behalf. We thank you that your death purchases not just our forgiveness, but also our future obedience. Help us to show our faith through our obedience to what you call us to do in your word. That we would not only do your commands, but teach them to others as we go forth and make disciples. Pray now that as we together prepare our hearts to celebrate who you are and what you've done for us, that you would send your spirit to to search our hearts and to show us the ways in which we fall short of doing what you require. And to show us the ways in which you've empowered us to walk in obedience.